Hey, we have an amazing event coming up, the Expert Advantage Workshop Series, where every day for a week, starting on Monday, May 20th, it's myself and another expert coming on to present to you about various kinds of things to help you with your brand and your business. Our brand new experts and residents in pro are gonna be there to co-host these workshops with me, and you're not gonna wanna miss it. You'll have a chance to ask all of them questions, and it's completely free to join. All you have to do is go to smartpassiveincome.com slash advantage. On Monday, May 20th, Amy Nelson's gonna come on, and we're gonna talk social media, but specifically how to drive revenue and connect with important stakeholders that matter to you in your business using social media. The next day, we have Noshin Chen, and she's gonna lead a presentation about how to become a better communicator, how to increase those skills faster, because that's gonna help you not just connect with new people, new clients, but also get your idea across better. Ton of takeaways in that presentation. And all you have to do to sign up and join and get all the links that you need is smartpassiveincome.com slash advantage. Again, one more time, smartpassiveincome.com slash advantage. Join us on our Expert Advantage workshop series. You're not gonna wanna miss it. Again, smartpassiveincome.com slash advantage. Oh, hello, and welcome to the Community Experience Podcast. We are so glad you're here. If you're one of our regulars, you're probably wondering why we haven't published in a while. We actually chose to sunset the show in early 2023, but the feed will stay active because so many of the episodes are timeless. If you want to learn more and search our back catalog, you can visit smartpassiveincome.com slash cxpodcast, all one word. Can you change the world without stepping outside of your comfort zone? In an ever-divisive landscape where everything is considered political, how do you gracefully dismantle the entire system? Well, Moira Weir has figured out how to have fun while leading her resistance. And we're going to learn from her how she does it and how you can do it too on this episode of The Community Experience. Be the change you want to see in the world is a quote often attributed to Mahatma Gandhi. And someone who's actually living this well is today's guest, Moira Weir of the Hen House Co-op. Through grassroots organizing to end the gender gap, Moira has curated a growing group of people who want to make big changes through focusing on their local community. Tony, I thought all of Moira's messaging is just so like delightful. I especially love the hen house concept. It's a co-op, but the website's coop. They talk about giving a cluck. They talk about their flock. I mean, the branding is just chef's kiss. (laughs) Which just makes everything about what she's doing a little bit more. I want to use the word palatable, but it's, it's just a little bit easier for people to digest because she's not shy about challenging status quo, challenging patriarchy. She's going to ruffle some feathers. (laughs) I'm sure she ruffles plenty of feathers, as we've heard. And so being able to approach things with a playful perspective, I think, just helps make facing difficult things a little bit more accessible. And I think there's a lot of value in that. In general, communities exist to change the status quo in one form or another. If you're running a community or part of a community that wants to change the status quo or you want to be, you can face this question of, well, how do I make this social change. And while there is a certain nobility to being an activist out in the street, being willing to put yourself out there like that, I think that there are a lot of people out there who would 
contribute to a social cause if it could be made accessible and, dare I say, fun. And so Moira does that with the Hen House Co-op and all of the work that she does. And so I hope that her story inspires you to maybe emulate a little bit of her style. And a quick note to our audience, in this episode, we talk about some topics and ideologies that may not resonate with you, but we challenge you to focus less on if a stance is for or against your personal beliefs and more on how an organization like Hen House has been able to make meaningful change through collective action. And if that sounds beyond what you're looking for in a podcast episode, no worries. We'll catch you on the next one. If you don't like the lyrics, you can press fast forward. <laughs> so with that in mind, let's get into the chat with Moira. All right. I am delighted to introduce our guest today who is joining us from Australia. So we appreciate her getting up early in the morning to join. Welcome to Moira Weir. Thanks, Jill. It's terrific to be here with you. We are excited. Yay. Welcome, Moira. Appreciate you getting up so early. Early bird catches the worm, right? If you're into worms, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, there's vegans out there who don't like worms. (laughs) Oh, no worries. Gummy worms. Well, no, I guess they're not vegan. But anyways, not the point. So Moira, your business is amazing. I love all of the, the funny lingo and whatnot. Tell our audience all about the coop. <laughs> Thanks, Jill. I founded a couple of years ago what we are calling the Hen House Co-op, actually. We're a co-op. And when we uh, were looking at getting our domain name, you know, co-op and coop, that was a part of what was irresistible to us. So the Hen House is designed to help close the gender investment gap. And we're looking at all different ways of doing that. So that's not just about investing. It's also about divesting away from the patriarchy and away from colonisation. So they're the things that are really driving us. It came about because about four years ago now, I was really surprised to learn that the gender investment gap is a real thing. I always knew about the gender pay gap and all of the gaps for women, you know, number of women on boards and all that kind of thing. But I was literally sitting on my red couch one afternoon and as a number of younger women had spoken to me about some challenges they'd had recently, I started to just start researching it and discovered that less than 4% of venture capital goes to female founders. And that just blew me away. I'd always been involved in gender issues particularly around things like housing and domestic violence uh, and supporting women into leadership roles and onto boards and CEOs. But I had no idea at that time. And once I started to do more and more research, I thought, well, better do something about this. I started a little Facebook group, thought there'd be like five friends interested in it, and we called it Chooks. And the reason I called it Chooks is that this is not a... uh, a visual, you're getting the audio, but I am not a spring chicken. I am a woman in Act 3, as Jane Fonda calls it, a woman over 60. I really am anti all the chick and chicky babe kind of language. And I thought, well, I'm more of a chook. You know, so in Australia, a chook is a real chicken, a household chicken who just, um, 
you know, girls hanging out together in the coop and doing their thing, laying eggs and getting on with the work that needs to be done. So I thought that would be a fun thing to do. There's now 3,500 people in that Facebook group. It's a closed group. If you want to find it, you can. it's Chooks SA. It's a community, really, who are exchanging ideas and information. But then a couple of years ago, I thought people might want to step up and do a little bit more than just be in a Facebook community. So that's what we, I then said, okay, I really love co-ops. I've been in co-ops for years. Why don't we, we start something? And why don't we call it the Hen House? And then everything kind of started to align. So that's how it all began. I love it so much. I love, like, the messaging is just great. I love the idea to give a cluck. Like, no clucks given. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Uh, I can have a lot of fun with this. I will refrain for everyone's sake. Talk to us about, you know, it's a co-op, as you said. How do you define a a co-op as far as being different from what people think of as a community? Like what makes a co-op special? A co-op is a a business model. So, you know, there are co-ops all over the world and and they've existed for, you know, a couple of hundred years. And in fact, the very first co-ops began in the United Kingdom. And when they began, women were equal members in the co-op. And this was like 25 years before they had the vote in the UK. So they were already able to vote and participate fully in the decisions of running a business as a co-op, even though they weren't allowed to be company directors, they weren't allowed to be voting on the ballot at the ballot box or even standing for parliament. Co-ops are a decision-making process, they are a tool, and they're a business model. A lot of people are really familiar with co-ops, particularly in the agriculture areas. In Australia, we've got co-ops, you know, whether you're in the wine industry or in a lot of agricultural tech and farming. But, you know, you can belong to all sorts of co-ops. And, in fact, the co-ops that are growing in the U.S. at the moment are particularly the driver's co-op in New York and Brooklyn and Up and Go is a fabulous women's co-op of um, migrant women who are working together to clean people's houses. And so one of the values of being in a co-op is that the if if it's a commercial co-op, then the distribution of the profit goes to the participants. So so instead of paying a shareholder from out of Silicon Valley or someone in London or Paris, um, you're paying yourselves. You're really cutting out those people who are living off the profits of your labour. So it's a generative process as opposed to an extractive one. And that's one of the reasons I love co-ops. And I've been in co-ops for years and years I really love the democratization of decision-making as much as anything. I know democratization of decision-making is something that it's very attractive for a lot of reasons. It definitely stands in contrast to some of the ways that a lot of things are run in the world that don't always lead to the best outcomes. I also know, having participated in some, that it can be difficult to get that up and running, to get buy-in and to get everyone on the same page, right? There could be a lot of infighting and struggles, things like that. So I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about governance and best practices, how you're able to kind of herd the cats effectively. Herd the chickens. Yes, or manage the chicks. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it's any different to any kind of other structure. You know, every single business has herding cat challenges but what, what you're doing in a co-op is you're all coming together with a common set of values. Like you've already said, hey, we want to work like this. 
if you don't want to work like that, there's plenty of other models. It's not compulsory to join a co-op. <laughs> so my, that's my uh, my main thing, uh, Tony. I say to people, well, if this isn't for you, that's fine. But if you want to participate, if you want to share in the decision-making, if you want to share in the way of getting common mission, then this is the place for you. And just as an example, in the hen house is we have a real desire to work out how to execute our mission. So instead of just the board making that decision, the board has the governance responsibilities of doing all the usual things any group of directors would need to do. But we came together in a process that is now taking a lot of good shape to design uh, and co-design with the members what a divestment strategy would look like. So while we want to invest in female founders and invest in things that are going to support sustainable development goals, we also want to find ways in which to move away from the things that don't do that well. So we called all our members together and said, look, this is a design challenge. What would something look like? And then a group of the, about 25 people came together in Zoom in our current uh, lockdown COVID world. That's actually been another democratising feature that we've been able to connect people who are living in regional and rural areas that perhaps wouldn't have been able to participate as easily in the past. So we had a co-design session, we worked out some ideas, and now we're trialling a couple of them. One of them we are calling Renest, which is like a divestment club. So back in the, the day, you know, a lot of women used to come together in investment clubs to learn about how to put their money in the right places. Well, I thought, well, we could do it the opposite way around. How about how taking money away from wrong places and putting it in the right places? We've just launched that and we're developing a set of partners to help us with that. And our first partner is a business called Superfierce. What they do is they get together with all of the superannuation funds and they can do like a little audit on what you've collected in your superannuation fund. And in Australia, women retire with about 47% less superannuation, so their pension, you know, self-funded pensions than men. So Superfierce will do a a little audit for you. That's their gift to us. And then if uh, you want to take it a bit further and actually reorganise your finances and reorganise your investment, our partnership is that they give us 10% of their commission and they also give $100 to one of our members who runs a, a social enterprise for women who are entering the workforce through coming back into it because of other issues like leaving prison, domestic violence, that kind of thing. So, you know, it's a win-win-win. So that's an example of how we're really trying to create new models and new ways of doing things that are going to shift the power, bring more equity to female founders and at the same time really demonstrate that these things are possible. So in many ways, the hen house and re-nest as an example of one of those things, we're really hoping we're creating some prototypes and that as a result of doing that, other people go, yeah, we could do that too, but we don't have to have a mortgage on this. We want to be able to demonstrate these things are possible. We would love other people to take up these ideas and just use them wherever they are in the world as well. Love that. I think, you know, we probably see a lot of things in different aspects of community that come back to the necessity of a well-articulated higher purpose and shared set of core values. And I think that just illustrates it further that, you know, even in a democratized environment, maybe especially in a democratized environment, 
it's so important that people know what it is that they are coming together for and that they all agree, you know, on kind of the high level of what it is that they're trying to achieve so that as they work together to decide what to do, or they might disagree on exactly how they go about something, you know, ultimately the path leads to a direction that everybody agrees is what they're there in the room to try to achieve. And I think that's that's a great thing. Yeah, and so we have three streams to our work. And one of those is give a cluck, which is just what it means to be a member of the of the co-op. We recognize that, you know, everyone has to come on their own terms to these things. So if you want to um, contribute, want to be a member of the Hen House Co-op, you just have to say one thing that you're going to be prepared to give a cluck about for the coming year. So in co-ops, you are required to have a, what they call an activity test. So if you were selling grapes, you, you know, you would be wanting to give a ton a year to the co-op to sell the grapes. In our case, what we like to do is we ask you to do one thing a year that's going to help close the gender investment gap. And that's up to you, but we do record what that thing is that you want to contribute to because we know every little contribution makes something bigger. There's that old Japanese proverb of, you know, that's the thousandth snowflake that breaks the branch. But, you know, every single snowflake makes a difference. So we really encourage people to say and contribute, you know, one thing, whatever that might be for themselves. Yeah, I really appreciate that. You know, I think, well, you used a phrase before we started recording, and I'd love to hear you talk a bit about that language. But personally, I care very deeply about the idea that we can spread ideas and actions. You know, if we inspire people to take action and those people inspire other people to take action, you know, that's how social change gets made, right? All the cliches are true. Maybe can you speak a little bit to your thinking behind that and how you're strategically kind of creating opportunities to inspire people to take action? Well, I hope that's what we're doing. One of the things that we think is really important that a lot of this is a design challenge, actually trying to work out how to do these things that will build a movement and a movement for change. And social change, whether it's divesting from fossil fuels, which has been a massive international campaign to help with climate change. In Australia and in other parts of the world, we've had fabulous divestment campaigns around health, like divesting in the tobacco companies. So why couldn't we have divestment or an investment into away from patriarchal systems as well and colonisation? And we think about this in the way that if we could do this well, then it would be completely irresistible and that the people would really want to come and do it. And so that's the challenge that we've kind of set for ourselves. How can we make the revolution irresistible? You know, this is not a new idea. It's one that has been around for years. And we know in our own practice, in our own everyday lives, if there's something that we just have to do, we want to do that inspires us and encourages, whether that's, um, you know, eating our favourite breakfast cereal all the way through to, um, you know, choosing to buy something because, you know, we want to be part of the in crowd, whatever that is, if there is an irresistibility to that. And that's the challenge we've given ourselves, Tony, like how can we do this in a way that, People want to get up in the morning and talk about it and get on with it. That language of irresistible, I think, just stands in contrast. When I hear, you know, the revolution, I think people on the streets getting arrested, protesting, you know, fighting, which only so many people are willing to do and 
only after so much kind of forces them out into the streets. I do like the idea of saying, well, what if we look at ways to subvert existing structures by having fun, by doing things that are enticing and attractive and easy and accessible to people who maybe aren't going to go and and fight on the streets, but who will be willing to participate in something that's positive and constructive in their neighborhood. And I think that's that's such a powerful framework for social change. Yeah, I think it was it was Tony uh, Bambara who used that term about the artists. That was the job of the artist to make the revolution irresistible. When she was talking about that, she was really coming from a very strong creative base. And I think a lot of revolutionary activities, and when I mean revolution, I mean about shifting the axis on which we're all revolving. We can all unleash our own creativity and we've seen this in incredible movements historically over the millennia and women's movements have been particularly creative I think historically. For example in the United Kingdom when Wilberforce was trying to end slavery it was the good ladies of London who stopped putting sugar in their tea and it became a activity that households were all over the country were stopping buying sugar, which really disrupted very powerfully the slave trade. And why they were doing that was a way to actually bring the issue. They couldn't be in parliament. They weren't able to vote. And yet they were major contributors. The suffragists, a lot of them made jewellery and also took their, their very good jewellery, the high class women, and sold it some of it was used to do all sorts of things, whether it was printing bills to tell everyone around the countryside, you know, to support the women's vote. So we've actually got in the hen house, we've got some jewellery as well. We've got chickens that you can buy earrings or, or a brooch. Most people will buy them and just think, oh, that's a really nice way of supporting our work. It actually has a historical reference about how to know who you are in the street, you know, And it's quite funny, particularly in the startup community here in my own hometown, um, I live on unceded territory of Ghana people. You'll find it on the map as Adelaide. In the startup community, people go, oh, my God, there's more in her hands or there's the chooks. And, you know, it's kind of like this way of infiltrating and it's fun. You know, people think, oh, that's a really cool, fun thing. Seth Godin, who I'm sure many of your listeners will know, uh, he talks about things, you know, you need to be memorable. So a lot of a lot of women say to me, oh, I really hate chooks. It's a terrible name. But, you know, everyone knows who they are and what it is. So it's a, it's a shorthand way too. So revolutions do need to be fun. They do need to be creative. And if we want them to take off, we have to find ways of bringing the fun element. I think in this current day and age, the work that is happening, in, particularly in the climate change movement with young people with the Friday's school strikes and all of the Extinction Rebellion work, that's not new. They are this generation's expression of how to do this. So we've got our own little design challenge to see how we can do that too in what's important to us. Absolutely. And how we can support that next generation. I love I love that you have the chucks, the symbolism of the chicken. It reminds me of the suffragettes and, and the lapel pins and whatnot to say, hey, you know, it's that nod. You see someone wearing it and you immediately have something to talk to that person about it. It's that initial, like, I know we have this in common, which is 
beautiful. I love it. I wanted to dive in just and selfishly because when we talk about divesting, like there's some no brainers, right? There's big corporations that we know, frankly, suck and we can see, you know, what brands they own and whatnot and avoid them. I've personally done it and, you know, used my dollars, if you will, to not support them. But I'm curious on a local scale, how do you go about figuring out who is worth investing in versus not investing in, um, in your community? Do you have, do you have resources or ideas for people? Yeah. So Jill, I think the very first thing is doing exactly what you've done, you know, just noticing what's around you. Like, so paying attention. So the first thing in any revolution is that consciousness raising, like actually asking and looking and seeing what's there and moving towards the things that you really want to support. So the first thing I always say is just check out, like, are there any women, is it a women's business who actually owns it? Where's the distribution of their profits going? Is there a woman on their board? Uh, So in my own life, uh, when I first started on this a few years ago, before the hen house began, and I thought, well, I need to be able to walk the talk. So I went and visited my um, superannuation fund because normally you just get your portfolio of everything and you don't even know who's who. And I made them print out for me every single board member of every single company that my dollars were being invested in and it was like 20 inches tall, this document. And I, so I said, can you please help me go through it? And I did, and I went through it one by one. And if there was a board that didn't have a woman on it, I said, I don't want any of my funds going there. That was my very first entry point for myself. People don't normally do that amount of work. Now, what's happened since I did that is the people who manage those superannuation funds I was just an early adopter because once you start talking about this, everyone wants to do it. So now they actually have a portfolio which has that all in it and people can just do it, you know. So it's really, you know, your own little contribution can make a a systems change and that's what we're interested in. And at the local level, there are things like just talking to everyone. (laughs) And nothing, that's a really powerful thing to do, like, going to farmers markets, going to the stalls that have the women in them or who've got the women growers doing that. And once you start doing that, people notice and they start talking and they start sharing and connecting in with each other. And so they're my main two things, noticing and talking and listening to each other. That's the best start. Absolutely. And it's interesting to see, it's obviously, it always happens. Progress is slow, as Michelle Obama says. I wish things happened faster, right? But I am noticing slowly that there is more awareness and beyond people who I think are already like yourself, where you were going in and asking for these documents before anyone else thought to even do that. But and now we're at a place where they're readily available. On a similar note, I see more people care and want to know who owns this business, especially small business. And as e-commerce has taken off and really allowed a lot of us to get into businesses that before it was only reserved for the corporate elite, things like, is this a black owned business? Is this a woman owned business? Is this a indigenous owned business or is it not? Is it something that maybe people shouldn't be selling what they're selling because it's cultural appropriation? All of that. I think we're all becoming much more aware of it as a society and it's great. I'm curious your thoughts on 
what do you think the next steps, like where, where do you see it going if we keep on this kind of positive awareness evolution? Yeah. So it, it is evolution. It's revolution. I think it's transformation. I think that's where we're up to. And these things do happen at scale and they can happen quickly. It feels slow sometimes, but I think we've seen in COVID, the veil has dropped on a number of lies and things can happen very, very quickly. So in my country, in Australia, childcare, for example, we were saying, oh, childcare is quite expensive. And yet it was in a flash of a pen, it was able to be free for everybody for the first sort of three months of COVID being in. Fancy that. Yeah, fancy that. Homelessness was over in five minutes. Every person who was on the street got housed in local hotels and Airbnbs, all sorts of places. So nobody was on the street because of the public health risk. People are being immunised at rates never seen in our planet before right now. These things can happen very, very quickly. And I think that we uh, we need to make sure that we keep saying that too and reminding people change doesn't have to be slow. In an emergency, it can be very fast. This is an emergency. As I love quoting Greta Thunberg, who's, you know, our wonderful international world leader in climate change, you know, and she says, you know, this is not a drill. The climate emergency is here. So let's just get on with it. And, you know, all our leaders will be, well, all our elected leaders will be um, meeting soon at COP. But, you know, leadership is a really important part of this. And you do not have to be an elected person to be influential. And in fact, I would argue that some of our great leaders have never been elected. If we look at Gandhi, Martin Luther King, we look at Greta, we look at Malala, Michelle Obama in your country, these are incredible people who have never been elected. So don't default. And I'm always saying this, people say, oh, you you know, we need you in parliament or we want you to run for office or And I go, no, what we need to do is this work. It's a people's movement. If we look at Black Lives Matter, those incredible women who have led that movement, they're not elected. Mobilisation requires, that's the scale piece. And that's when things can happen quickly. Just as you have scale in any startup business for growth, you need that adoption. Uh, You need people, you have the early adopters, you have your first followers, And you're always going to have your laggards. The people are never going to get there. But once you get to a certain tipping point, it can move very, very, very quickly. Yeah. (laughs) I'm speechless, Moira. It's, you know, it's funny too, because on one hand, it all feels so hopeless and overwhelming, right? Like there's, there are days where I just kind of want to not participate and be in a little like ball and just say, nope, I'm out. And I have that privilege and I recognize that as a privilege on so many different levels. And I, I acknowledge that. But then you think about these groups and, and grassroots efforts and you look historically at what they've done. And frankly, they're more effective than any government. I mean, and, and I think we're, you know, like you said, the veil is lifting, like we're rapidly becoming aware through things like the Panama Papers and all these other things that are happening We don't have to stand for it. We don't have to keep working and dedicating our lives to the economy in the way that we've all been told to do for centuries because it's not working. It's not working. So that's why for us, 
is about patriarchy. You know, a lot of people say, oh, don't use the P word, you know. And I go, well, it's a system. I'm not anti-men. Um, I, it's bad for them too. So, you know, patriarchy and colonisation has got a lot to answer for. And we participate in it daily without even realising. So part of the things that we need to do is try and shift ourselves in that, and that's the personal transformation work. It doesn't just happen because one person does it. It happens because lots of people do it, and that's why the systems need shifting. But when we stop doing it, our little contribution does make a difference. The more that those every little pieces of snowflake, every little contribution is going to help break that bow. I feel like communities rarely come together to preserve the status quo. Usually there's a community because people want to have something that they didn't have before, or they want to change something in their own lives or in the lives of their environment. When I started getting into community building, eventually I realized that our community was also a constituency. And if it had sufficient size or influence, then it could wield that as a political force, uh, whether through direct policy or just indirectly through shifting culture. Yeah, we're seeing this a lot all around the world, particularly in renewables, where communities are coming together to own their own energy. So wind farms and solar farms and things like that. I mean, Australia's example for this is that our federal government are appalling and a complete embarrassment to me about how they've done and approached climate change. However, all the states and territories have done really well. So the combination of all of that is probably better than the feds would ever have been able to do on their own. And in fact, in South Australia, you know, we meet our, you know, we are 100% renewable many, many days of the year now. And when that first started, when we're I was actually working for um, the South Australian government at the time. I was a chief of staff for one of our ministers. I was working for the Minister for Education and we put a pilot program out for solar panels on 30 schools. That was our tiny little contribution and it was oversubscribed for the pilot program. Now nearly every single school in South Australia has solar panels and they are contributing back into the grid so this is the way those things happen. But the reason that happened was because electorally people were asking for that at the beginning of this century. It was going to save money. It was, it was going to cost a bit up front. But over the years, well, now some of those early schools are getting new panels because the old ones are worn out after 20 years. So it's I find that they are the ways that communities can make themselves visible, what they want, and they can vote in that way. But they can also do the work themselves community wealth building, and that's part of why I love co-ops, is because people can come together around the things that are important to them and start doing that, and they can do it in a commercial or a non-commercial sense. So in the hen house, we're a not-for-profit. We're not trying to make money out of this. We're trying to shift the conditions that are keeping these inequities in place. But there's plenty of co-ops that are financially viable and are commercial and making a, you know, a really good return. And that's the kind of thing we would want. We want that kind of community wealth building actually happening on the ground. And, um, and we know that those economic drivers can be very useful incentives for those people who perhaps can't come the whole way with their own values and behavior. You know, and I think it was Martin Luther King who said, you know, you can legislate for behavioural change, you can't legislate for attitudinal change. 
So you can say, please stop using racist language and you can be fine for that. But and that starts to change things. And in community health, we saw that in the anti the smoking campaigns with people not being able to smoke in restaurants or in public transport or on aeroplanes. You know, it's hard to believe there was a time when people smoked on planes. That's what makes the difference. It's amazing. Sometimes I'll go somewhere that's just a little more rural or just like not quite as, you know, um, with the times, I guess, is the kind way to say it. And people will be like smoking indoors. And it's it's such a jarring experience. But then I think back to even, I mean, not not to age myself, but like when I was in university, there were places you could smoke in bars and, you know, and it was totally normal. And you'd go wake up the next day and be like, I feel terrible. And it was because of the air you'd been breathing. I mean, the alcohol probably too, but definitely the air. <laughs> I'm imagining a time when that's how we're going to feel about patriarchy. Oh my God, you really did that back in the day? <laughs> <laughs> it often feels like such a, a big fight because the systems have been in place and in power for so long. We don't really know better. We don't know alternatives. So challenging these systems, it feels big and scary. But when you really break it down, it's not like what you're saying, like the co-op, that doesn't need to be political. That doesn't need to be a divide. It, it helps people. And when I think about a lot of places in the States in particular, agriculture is dying in the sense of, of actual like farmer owned agriculture. It's all becoming big ag, right? Something like a community co-op, you know, we have a local food co-op and it, things like that, like helping and really focusing on the, the welfare of your community is just, it's advantageous to everybody. You know, so even if I'm okay and I can go to the grocery store and I don't think twice about the price of strawberries, that's fine. But I can still participate in a co-op and put my dollars into it and support a local farmer. And even if I don't need the the extra produce that's going to then be put back into my community through the food banks, like that's benefiting other people, but I can still participate and vice versa. You know, it's just such a, it's such a wonderful model. And it's fun to think about how that could expand beyond the things we think of. Because when I think of a co-op, I think of a co-op grocery store, you know, I think of things like that, but it goes so much farther. But I wanted to shift gears a little bit and quickly talk about, because I know this is a thing for all of us, but with, you know, the the division and political climate and internet trolling and all of that, I'm curious with the hen house, I mean, you are very, it's a like feminist anti-patriarchy organization. And I know there's a lot of people out there that hear that and they just get triggered and they close down and they're like, oh, they hate men and they want to do these things and witchcraft and blah. And in reality, it's not that at all. I know because I'm right there with you, but there's a lot of hate and people get very bold with their hate and there's threats. And, you know, it's just a thing that we, we deal with anymore. And I'm curious as an organization, as individuals, have you experienced that and how do you deal with it and keep kind of keep your chin up and keep the movement going? So yes, um, <laughs> there are other haters out there. So I see this as a design challenge. I want you to fall in love with me and think, wow, she's not crazy. And well, maybe she's a bit crazy, but I kind of like crazy, you know, so fun crazy. Yeah, fun crazy. So I think that one of the, one of the things that's been really useful is that I am pretty mainstream. You know, I'm a mom. I had four kids. I um, am a grandmother started my life as a social worker, you know, I'm a widow now, you know, I just, I'm pretty ordinary if you look at all of those kind of variables. So that makes, there's an attraction in that, that doesn't scare people off too much. However, when, you know, when I'm sitting in, I was in a VC roundtable 
a venture capital roundtable not that long ago and there were two women in the room. There was about 20 of us in the room and we're all going around introducing ourselves and they're all saying, I'm Brad or I'm Chad or I'm whoever they are, (laughs) saying, you know, I'm disrupting dot, 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 dot. And when it got to my turn, I said, oh, hi, I'm Wera. I'm disrupting patriarchy. And it was like a mic drop moment. (laughs) All the guys in the room are going, oh, my God, uh, who is this woman? It was so much fun. Like, and so nobody, even though it was all true, I just did it in, a, in the same serious voices they had all done their disrupting sentence with. So I think that that's about courage and it's also about, again, this design challenge of treating it as, okay, I can play this game too, but we're going to play it with my rules. So I really enjoy the opportunities of when those things happen and not, not be scared of it. When I was setting up the Facebook group, which was the foundation of this, I got trolled really, really badly on a number of the startup Facebook groups. And um, I contacted one of my kids who's in his 30s and uh, said, I am so excited. I am getting trolled really badly. And he says, Mum, I don't think that's how that's meant to work. <laughs> You're meant to be scared. But I just treated it as hilarious and I wasn't personally, what are they going to do to me, you know? Like, really? You know, I'm I'm of a generation where I can say, you know, sticks and stones will break my bones and I can play that. I'm happy to go in for the, the conversation. That's not to say that it's not hurtful and hateful and there had certainly been times I was doing a lot of anti-racism campaigning in the 80s and 90s. I had my phone tapped. We had bricks through our windows. My kids were threatened at school. I know what it's like to do that. I am a white English-speaking woman who's got a roof over her house. That is the price of my privilege to take one for the team. And that's the way I like to think of it. I want to be best friends. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Something really rang true for me when you said that you were a grandmother and okay, you're not crazy. Well, you're a little bit crazy, but not, you know, and I think that staying in that or or representing things from that territory makes what you're trying to achieve feel more achievable and more accessible to other people. I'm reminded of, I'm not sure exactly where it was. It may have been Portland. During the peak of the Black Lives Matter protests, there was a consortium of grandmas wearing Black Lives Matter t-shirts. And I just thought that Things like that just made such a strong statement of what are they going to do? Are they going to beat these ladies? You know, (laughs) like, what are we doing here? You know, I think that's such a powerful thing for us to for us to be normal people participating in society and also to be representing something important. Absolutely, Tony. And and all movements begin like this. We're all somebody's sister, brother, auntie, dad. That's how these things happen. Like, if I look at the movements historically, you know, the women of the, you know, the mothers of the disappeared in Latin America, uh, the grandmas for refugees worldwide, these are the people, and mostly they have been women-led movements historically, actually. So we understand, you know, the First Nations women around the world who stand on their land and in front of their tra- the tractors and the bulldozers. There's a preservation in this as well, of the planet and of, of our people and of purpose. I think when people say, I, that she just looks like me, I've got a kid too, my grandson, ha- this happened to them, or 
My nephew was was killed by a police officer. Th- these are universal experiences of what it means to be connected, and we are all connected, and that's part of the whole transformational uh, learning. I think we have to do as you know, as a human community worldwide is once we understand that we are all connected it completely shifts how we behave in our day-to-day lives and that's when the rising up happens you know the saps coming up from the ground and growing those trees to bring the changes we all want to see in the world i think it's an important thing to point out that and there may be some exceptions to this but you know when you're talking about fighting patriarchy for example that's not a human Right, that's a concept. It's a, a culture and a system. Yeah. And, you know, patriarchy is not serving the men either. We look at the suicide rates. We look at the health implications, the loneliness. There's a lot of men who perhaps don't realise that they are victims of those systems as well and and a lot of men who are desperately trying to make their contribution as well. So the hen house is open to men and women, non-binary folks. It doesn't matter who you are. If you want to be involved, you know, there's room for all of you. I want to talk forever. I do think it's important, and and maybe we can end on this, although, I, again, I have several questions and comments, but I think this is something I'm seeing a lot is especially white males, but also white women. We're not far behind this, but just in general and just like from a gender perspective, males, but there's a lot of just immediate fear. I think most issues today come from fear-based thinking and the thought of things being taken away, whether it's land, you know, land back, whether it's rights or privileges. What are your tools and tips for having conversations with people and them not shutting down immediately because they just assume you're going to say whatever it is they heard on Facebook? I think that's a really doing exactly what you did, Jill, going ouch and noticing that. You know, I will often say to people, you know, if they do have a reaction, oh, tell me about what that feels like, you know. How does that feel and where does it feel in your body? You know, people will say, oh, you know, it makes, breaks my heart or it hurts my ears or I don't want to see it or I want to choke up. And that's often, you know, embodied language is a really good way to have an entry point into a conversation because it helps, you know, at the cellular level, literally you can start doing the rewiring that goes on and it's very hard to come up with new synaptic pathways in our brain when we have had generations of thinking that we are the world leaders and when in fact you know we I live on stolen land land that has never been ceded that's a fact if a first nation person says to me you live on stolen land and you're a colonizer that's all true just in the same way that all men aren't rapists, but men are the ones that mainly rape, that is also true. So, you know, trying to find ways to bring that to people's attention. So that's one thing I do. The other thing I do is just hear it and I encourage people to, again, walk towards where they would like to be. So um, if you notice that ouch moment, what's something you could do personally So for me, you know, I've always got a practice of recognising the land on which I live. I'll always try to ask myself, what does it mean to live like from a First Nations orientation? You know, what are the local fruits and vegetables that grew here long before white people came and tore up the land? And just trying to live in a way that follows the seasons and the seasonality of life. 
you know, you can do a little, little thing, just buying fruit and vegetables that are in season as opposed to something that's travelled 5,000 miles to get there, you know. So I think that helps. And the other thing that I do a lot of, and this is reflective of my my grandmotherhood, and that's, you know, buying presents for people that challenge those values. So children's books that are from First Nation stories of the land that you're in. Everyone in my family knows they will get something like this and they have been getting it for ever since they were little. Uh, books and um, clothing or pieces of art or a little piece of jewellery or a bookmark. It doesn't have to be expensive. They can be small things, a card that always comes from the local area and just helping, just, just doing it. Like I think sometimes you don't have to talk a lot. If you're a really good storyteller, it's a show, not tell approach. And I think that you can do that yourself if you're finding that hard. You don't have to enter the conversation, but you can be in the conversation um, by just offering an alternative worldview or an alternative way of being. I'm amazed at the number of times I wear different earrings from different communities and people all say, oh, that's beautiful. Where did you get that from? And that's an entry point for a conversation. That's super clever. <laughs> and you're supporting a local artist. Just rooting it back and making the revolution irresistible that people can't help but compliment your earrings. And all you're doing is wearing a pretty set of earrings, but it invites a nice conversation. I was admiring your earrings this whole time, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> One I'm wearing today, <laughs> for those of you who can't see, from Peru. So from a First Nations community in Peru, where one of my daughters lives in Mexico, in Mexico City. And on one trip home, she brought some earrings from Indigenous communities, and these ones are from Peru. So somebody can ask me about that. And that enters the conversation. That's wonderful. I have a pair of earrings from Kenya, and they're associated with a water well fundraising effort that I was a part of. And so it's a great conversation starter about water and human right to drinking, clean drinking water. The revolution will be fabulous. It will. Well, I think we should move into our rapid fire. Tony, do you want to be the the rapid fire asker? I will rapid fire. Yeah, absolutely. Moira, we're going to ask you some questions and there's no wrong answers. Some of them are kind of personal and easy. Some are more philosophical. So just, you know, just tell us whatever pops into your mind first. We'll have some fun. When you were wee little Moira, what did you want to be when you grew up? A motor mechanic and a journalist. Whoa. <laughs> Why a motor mechanic? I think I thought I'd meet really cool guys. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> How do you define community? Connection, people feeling connected to each other. Love it. And in terms of your bucket list, what is something that is on your bucket list that you have done, something that you crossed off the list? So I walked the Camino at Santiago de Compostela just before the pandemic, a few months before we all locked down. I didn't do all of it. I did 220 kilometers of it. That was pretty cool. Woo! Which route did you do? That's, that's plenty. Portugal. So I started in Portugal. I started just out of Porto in Barcelos and then walked the Portuguese way to Santiago de Compostela. Amazing. That's on my bucket list. We'll see you there, Jill. Yeah. Staying on the bucket list, what's something that's still on that list, something you haven't done? What's on that list is the Japanese Camino, the Kumano de Kodo, which you go up the hill and just keep going into the clouds. So I'm going to have to get a lot fitter than I am right now. 
that's a much, much shorter trip than the Camino, but it'll be a really cool walking pilgrimage. I'm looking forward to doing that when we all get to be able to be on the road again. Beautiful. Let's talk books. What is a book that you are just loving? Something you want to share with everybody? Oh my goodness. Where do I begin? It can be... (laughs) <laughs> it can be an all-timer too. And really, you know, just whatever hits your head first. Yeah, my very first favorite book that I just read about a thousand times when I was a child, and I still tell people to read it, is C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Uh, it's got fabulous characters. It's a community of brothers and sisters. Um, it's got all, I did, when I first read it, I didn't appreciate all the allegory in it about the kind of new world and the future and and I just love it. And I think it's a must read for every person. Timeless. And in terms of geography, if you could live anywhere in the world other than where you live? Oh, I'd probably live on the west coast of Ireland, just near the Barren. That's lovely. T- tell me more. I don't know much about that particular part of the world. So that part of the world is geomorphologically, it's connected to the Arctic Circle and it's so there's lots of plant life there that doesn't exist anywhere else. So it's like it's World Heritage Site. In the west of Ireland, all the trees are falling over towards the west because that's the way the wind blows. And they literally, you know, at sort of 45, 65 degree angles. And I did a walking and singing and poetry tour there about 10 years ago with David White, who's my favourite living poet. Mary Oliver was, but she sadly dies, and she's my now favourite dead poet. It's a beautiful place because of its wilderness. It's a um, Where I live in Australia, there's definitely a lot of wilderness and desert country where I live, and I do love the wilderness as a way of being in touch with, uh, with nature and the lessons that nature can give us, you know, being blown around. The barren, the week, 10 days I was walking there, was a very good teacher to me. The ground is very spongy and you walk along the ground and then you fall into a hole all the time because you can't see all the rocks underneath this spongy surface. And that's a bit what life's like, right? We walk along the top and then all of a sudden we find ourselves down a hole or we twist our ankle metaphorically. And I, I feel that the barren, when I'm not doing so well, I'm going, oh, I'm on the barren. That's right. That's what I'm, and I just try and tune into the landscape to be my teacher. That's so beautiful. We could talk plenty more about tuning into the land and how much that can serve you in so many ways. Mm-hmm. I live in a particularly urban part of New York City right now and definitely notice when it's been too long since I put my feet in the soil. Final question, how do you want to be remembered? I have a brother who says that on my gravestone, He's going to make sure that the words are, she said, trust the process. I kind of like that because that is truly what I believe, that I think if we design good process, we will get great outcomes. I would like to be known as someone who, um, you know, helped as many voices be heard as possible. Beautifully put. I love the idea of just imagining what would go on the headstone, you know, what would be the phrase that somebody, some, that somebody else would put on there you know, for me. I told you I didn't feel good. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> Mike Milligan's got that on his headstone. <laughs> I told you I was sick is the one that's on his Moira, how do folks tuning in find you? Where are your links? Where are your socials? I'm everywhere. <laughs> 
Uh, so you can find me on Instagram, Moira Weir, and you can follow the Hen House there as well. And I love people to follow us there. And um, on Twitter, we're there as well. So again, just um, at Moira Weir. You can find me if people want to track me down on LinkedIn. That's a really good space to hit me up as well. I'd love to hear from people. And if you're a Facebook person, you know, this has not been a good time for our friends in uh, Facebook land. But if you are a Facebook person, you want to join the Chooks SA. It is a closed group, but you're very welcome. Just find Chooks SA. And the Hen House, if you come to the henhouse.coop website, you will be able to subscribe to news. And if anyone wants to become a member of the Hen House, we would love to have you as a co-op member as well. Clark, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and let us know if you join. Maura, thanks so much for your time. It's been an absolute joy. Yeah, lovely. Thank you so much for all that you're doing in the world and getting all these messages out. This is fantastic. So all the very best to both of you. Right back at you. Keep making the revolution fabulous and irresistible. (laughs) All right. Maura Weir, everybody. She gives a cluck and she does not pull punches. I was going to say no clucks given. (laughs) No no clucks given. You know, Jill, we said this before we started recording, but I think it's worth saying here. I want this show to be something that is accessible to most anyone. And, you know, obviously Moira has a very strong kind of political standpoint. I also think social activism is a community in and of itself. And I'd like to think we try hard to have a wide range of of guests. I mean, we've had religious leaders of various religions. Now we're we're dipping a toe into, you know, social activism. And I think it's all for the greater good. We can all get along. We can all respect each other's point of views. And something I firmly believe that I've said many times to Tony, probably on the podcast, but I'll say it again is I guarantee that every human on the planet you could have a conversation with and find something in common to talk about. And we have to focus on what brings us together versus what sets us apart if we want to continue as a society. Well put, Joe. And you know, you're you're reminding me too that, you know, the importance of fun, the importance of making things playful and accessible, I think lowers that barrier and maybe creates some common ground. And I feel like that's a really valuable thing. I agree. And and when you take a step back and look at what the Hen House Coop (laughs) Co-op does, I mean, and full disclosure, I joined it after the call. Like I I believe very much in in helping close the the gender pay gap and investing in women. I really am passionate about investing in black women owned businesses and in indigenous women owned businesses. That is something that's personally important to me. And so for me to take action on that, I thought Moira's organization was very aligned with my own beliefs. I'm, I'm a big fan of Kiva and doing microloans, and it reminds me a lot of that. But something I like about her organization and, and was prompted me to join it was that you declare what it is, what's important to you this year, what are you going to work on? And is it is it investing in things you care about? Is it divesting in things that don't align with your values? And the beauty of that is your values in that aren't the main purpose. The main purpose is how are you going to take action for said values, regardless of what those values are? Like, yes, at the Hen House Co-op, it's women's and the the gender pay gap. But think about this from your own community perspective, this co-op style of quote unquote buying in shares, which you literally do for Hen House, you buy shares into the co-op. And I like that. I think that's cool. That's a good idea for any community. 
and and the declaration of this is the thing that's important to me and I'm focused on this next year. Like that helps people come together with similar goals of learning. I mean, it's it's cool. You make a good point about how you represent your support for someone. It could be as simple as buying earrings from somebody who is from a, you know, a group that you want to support. And they're very pretty. They're very distinctive, probably really unique. And it's going to invite conversation. And it's probably a really innocuous, but potentially very valuable starting point to say, oh, well, I actually got it from, you know, this indigenous jewelry maker in town. You know, her stuff's really beautiful. And maybe that leads to a really enlightening conversation about, you know, what's going on in a way that some people might not have otherwise been able to talk about it. Yeah. You know, there's other forms of this that I I really like when talking about veterans and caring about veterans, remembering veterans, honoring veterans, the red poppy. That's a really, and, and in British and like British adjacent, so like Canada, I know it's a big deal. Um, in the UK, it's a big deal. The red poppy is a symbol, lest we forget, you know, and in America, it's commemorating um, or it's it's honoring the sacrifices of soldiers during World War One. But it means more than that in other countries. I have a red poppy I wear every Veterans Day in honor of my grandfather, who was um, in the Canadian Royal Army in World War II. And, you know, it's something that's really important to me. And if I see somebody with one, and usually I don't see people my age or in this area, it's usually more in Canada or bigger cities, but sometimes I see people handing them out for Veterans Day. I know exactly what it is. I talk to them. It's a lovely bonding experience and it's using, you know, for lack of a better word, merch, but it's a great way to, to have conversations with people. Absolutely. Branding and symbolism are such powerful constructs in, in community and, and identity and uh, that, that imagery. And, you know, again, it could just be a matter of supporting somebody in a visible way and sparking conversation as a result. Yeah. Be it a, a chicken on, on your lapel or a poppy. More chicken lapels. <laughs> the chickens are cute. If you go to their site and look, like there's a shop, I looked at it before we talked about that and I was like, oh my gosh, I got these cute chickens. (laughs) I would love to know if you have some symbols or some imagery, some people you want to visibly support in your community. We're at Team SPI on Twitter and we would love to hear from you. So go put some chickens on your lapel, some chicken pins on your lapel, buy from some wonderful people in your community and tell us how it goes. And we'll catch you on the next episode of the Community Experience. This has been The Community Experience. For more information on this episode, including links and show notes, head over to smartpassiveincome.com slash listen. You can find Moira Weir at her website, henhouse.coop, aka co-op, but just C-O-O-P. And on Instagram, you can find the coop at henhousecoop. Our executive producer is Matt Gartland. Our series producers are David Grabowski and senior producer Sarah Jane Hess. Editing and sound design by Duncan Brown. Music by David Grabowski. See you next time.